1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. So if you have a Bible, turn there. There's some in the pews in front of you, or it'll be on the screen behind this way to me. Um, And would you stand as I read? Hear the word of the Lord. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but am under the law of Christ to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by every possible means, I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and ask desperately that you would come and be our guide, be our teacher, be our helper, be the one who encourages us, be the one who exhorts us, be the one who admonishes us, be the one who disciplines us. Would you do your will this morning through your word, by the power of your spirit, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft before you. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard for the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, help us. Speak to us, Father. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. Your people, your children are listening. Have mercy in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. J. Hudson Taylor sailed from Liverpool, England in 1853, I think it was. J. Hudson Taylor. Uh, Liverpool, England, if you're curious. Uh, He spent the next uh, half century as a missionary in China. He established what would become the China Inland Mission. And he was a groundbreaker on on numerous fronts. One was uh, that at that time in the mid-19th century, the entirety almost of the missionary efforts, both Protestant and Roman Catholic and beyond, to China were all based upon the coast. 
But J. Hudson Taylor became aware that there were gigantic numbers of people that were inland. And so hence, it's the China Inland Mission. And just like anywhere else, the coastal region of China, even at that time, this is before, before things got crazy, right? <laughs> uh, that it was open, right? But it was much more cosmopolitan. The cities of uh, what, what was then, is now Beijing, was then Peking, and uh, there was Shanghai. All those coastal cities were more cosmopolitan. And so a, a British person or a foreigner would be, feel more comfortable. And the missionaries of the day would, mainly, they would dress like, a British person would dress like British people. And an American would dress like an American. But one of the things, and he did a million things, and this is, I couldn't tell you all about J. Hudson Taylor right now. But one thing that he did do that was revolutionary at the time, it doesn't sound revolutionary, but that was something he did at the time that was, was out of the norm as he pressed into the inland parts of China, leaving many of the Westerners behind. One of the things that he did is that he adopted Chinese dress. He began to dress like a Chinese man rather than a British man. Now, you can imagine what that might look like. He's not, he's not wearing coats and ties and slacks. He was wearing the pants and the shirts, the, the silk garments of a China Chinese man. He even grew his hair to look like a Chinese man. And so when I was thinking about this text, and I, and I just, I, I've ha- I had about three or four messages for this whole, right? Uh, and this is the one that the Lord has uh, put before us, uh, before, because we're kind of in between series and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking about what ought we to talk about before we come into our missions weekend. And this text struck me. But J. Hudson Taylor is a perfect example. He became as those he intended to save. He became as those he intended to win. That he dropped the cultural garb that surrounded the gospel in order to simply present the gospel. But oftentimes I think we get those kind of ingrown in each other. Where does our cultural inheritance bleed into our understanding of the gospel? What needs to go in order for us to reach the ones that God has for us to reach? What needs to be adopted and what needs to be left behind? There is an inevitable, there is an inevitable, despite what some modern guys want to say, There is an inevitable contextualization that has to happen if faithful gospel ministry is going to be done in a particular culture. Now, that can go too far. It can fall into accommodation. It can fall into syncretism where the the idolatrous cycles and the idols of a particular culture are brought onto missionaries into the culture. And the gospel is lost. But so much of the problem of mission efforts in China before J. Hudson Taylor got there is that part of the missionary effort was the colonialization of the British Empire. They were bringing Britishness in with their gospel. Now, some of that's inevitable. You are who you are. 
But you need to be aware. They had to be aware of what they were bringing to the table. In every culture, in every culture, there are things that are good. There are things that are bad. I'm not here to say there's a whole big thing in our culture right now about if we can even say if some cultures are bad or not. I'm going to go on the record and say that there are bad things about cultures. Like when William Carey, the father, he was called the father of modern missions, who was right, right on the same time as J. Hudson Taylor, he went from England to India. William Carey did. And during his time there, he confronted a, a practice where the uh, widows would be burned after their husbands died. I'm just going to say that's bad, right? So we can say that there are cultural things that need to go. When the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's... Now, with, the, with First and Second Corinthians, we have this back and forth. There are, there are letters on both ends that we do not possess. There are, there are letters that Paul wrote to them that we don't have. And there are letters that that church wrote to Paul that we don't have. So we're kind of having to fill in the gaps a little bit. But part of what Paul has... He's encountering is that the, the, the Corinthians had one, they were falling into division. They serve, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of this guy. And they'd fallen for what were what were called super apostles. They've, they were they fall for these these super teachers who were very charismatic, who could draw a crowd. And so in chapter nine, Paul is having to defend his position as an apostle. And that he has to, he, that he has this right to, have, to earn a wage from preaching the gospel, but he doesn't do it so that he doesn't inhibit the gospel, this whole thing back and forth. But he says he has to preach the gospel. But at the end of the chapter, he puts this, this famous passage that I just read to you. He puts it on the end saying, I've become all things to all people so that I might win some. He gives his rights away to make the gospel palatable. Now, and I'll use the language palatable on purpose. There are some in the world today who believe that we must maximize the offensiveness of the gospel. Well, the gospel in and of itself is offensive to the sinful person. To the natural man or woman who is still dead in their sins and trespasses, the message that they need, the death of Jesus to reconcile them to God, that they're somehow not sufficient in and of themselves, that's already offensive. If we're going to be faithfully preaching the gospel, it's going to be offensive, but you don't have to make it a headlining thing. You don't have to go out of the gate saying, I'm going to make this as like 40 grit sandpaper every time I try to share it. Anybody know what 40 grit sandpaper is? It's very rough. If you're, if you're curious, it took me a while to get this as a kid. That the lower the number, the rougher it was, the higher the number, the not, I'm not smoother, but uh, anyways, I don't know who's a, I know y'all, some of y'all actually do like woodwork stuff or make turkey calls, which I guess is wood, you know, you do other stuff too, but copper and aluminum and I don't slate, it's good grief. Um, all right. But Paul says, I am in Jesus, I'm free. There is a freedom. 
There is, a, there is a liberty that Paul has as an apostle and as a Christian in verse 19. And I'm not anyone's slave. He's saying, I'm not a servant to anyone, but I willfully, freely become a slave. I've made myself a slave to win everyone. I've made a slave to everyone in order to win more people. That Paul's concern is not himself. Paul's concern is the gospel and the kingdom of God. A question that's been on my mind. You know, last year we, we started the missions weekend. We're going to have our second annual by God's grace. And I think about what happened last year. And what we were, what we were praying for on Saturday night. We were praying that God would provide resources that Kevin and Lisa Abbott would be able to go to Mongolia. Where are they today? They're in Mongolia. We prayed that God would raise up a church planter to send down here to plant a Vietnamese ethnic church in Northeast Columbia. And now, thanks to the U.S. government, it is what it is. Thanks to the U.S. government and immigration and all that kind of stuff, it's been delayed, delayed, delayed. But... He is supposed to get here this summer. I was hoping he'd be here in time for our missions weekend so we could put him in front of you guys. But when the time comes, he'll, he'll be here. But God has provided not only for him getting here, but we as a church, whenever it was that we had our last business meeting, last month, the 24th, I think it was the 24th, we voted. And you guys were like, I mean, it was like a solemn choir in here, but I was like, going nuts. We voted for, to commit ourselves for three years financially that we would give in order for them to be able to, to reach the point of being self-sustaining. And God has led us into a community of other churches that were linking arms with four other churches in our community to make this happen because we recognize that we can't send out a church plant by ourselves yet. But it doesn't mean that we're not going. So you can say right now, Blaney Baptist Church, you're sending missionaries across the world. And you were already doing that before Kevin and Lisa. But now you know some. Through the International Mission Board and otherwise. And you could say that we're planting a church in northeast Columbia. Among, among the Vietnamese people so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there's this population between four and 6,000 Vietnamese that don't have a Vietnamese church. That doesn't speak Vietnamese. You know, they're not preaching in Vietnamese and singing in Vietnamese. A fertile mission ground is right here. And God has opened the door for us to step into what God is doing. And so if you look at the paradigm of Acts 1-8, which has really kind of been my headliner of how do we engage missionally in the world? You'll receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And through strategic partnerships and sending, we've been working backwards through from that. Right? We helped send Kevin and Lisa. Now, we were, again, we were already, we already give money to the International Mission Board, but I wanted you guys, and some of you support them individually. Some of you have adopted them and you send money monthly to help them. That's, amen. Keep it up. We as a church do as well. We've committed to a number that we send to them. It's not huge, but we partner as a church. We have a mission. It's so important that you see it on our budget. That we are helping send them, but we're working backwards through strategic partnerships. And we're able to touch the nations in our community. I'm bragging on y'all and God's grace through us. 
through strategic partnerships with other churches like North Turnham Baptist Church and Spring Valley Baptist Church and First Baptist Columbia and Awaken. I want you to know we're the little guy in that bunch. But we're still at the table. And we prayed. I don't know if you all remember. We've been praying for years. When that first opportunity hit my ear, I, com- I, I committed us to it. I said, we're going to pray and we're going to do whatever we can do. This is something the Lord sparked in my heart in that moment. It was in some associational meeting. It felt like 10 years ago. And we continue to pray. And when he gets here, they're going to need, they're going to need our funds that we're giving, but they're going to need us. They might need us to help them partner with projects in their communities, help them get the word out. So the question that's been on my mind is what now? And I have this whole thing written of like, this is what I see. And I don't want to give that to you yet because I don't want to just blurt it out there before it's really had some time to test it, run it by leadership, pray over it. But if we're saying... Acts 1.8 is our paradigm. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we're working backwards through strategic partnerships. The question that's on my heart, my question is on my heart, is what, and, and not just what, it's, and it, I'm, not, I'm not asking the question because we're not doing anything, but we don't have a, it's not a clarity to it. But what are we doing in Elgin and surrounding areas so that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to hear, see, and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? What are we doing? How are we praying? How are we serving? How are we giving? How are we operating individually so that every person... Every person in Elgin, every person in 29045 or whatever, whatever we want to draw that circle. How do we see saturation with the gospel happen here? We've been working back, right? We've, we've done into the earth. You could say we've done sort of into the earth plus our Samaria people that are nearby to us, but they're very different than us. But we're helping partners see a gospel plant, gospel church planted there. <clears throat> so what are we doing now? And this is, and probably we're working backwards because, dear ones, those things are easier than what I'm about to challenge us to. It's easier. It would be easier, and and maybe one day God's going to give us grace. We're going to, and this is a target on the wall. I say I'm going to take the the maybe out of that equation. One day God's going to give us the grace so that we can send teams, either to Mongolia. We're definitely going to be able to send some teams down to Northeast Columbia to help the Vietnamese church. Maybe to help John, John and Jenny Quarter, the youth minister at Hillcrest. No longer he's going to plant a church in Montana. So maybe we could send teams out there and help support them. But that's easier than what Paul's talking about here. For what the Lord is convicting me of, and I think is, is laying upon us as a church. How do we posture ourselves so that every, again, every man, woman, and child. Consider Elgin, South Carolina. Consider Elgin when you moved here, if you live in Elgin. 
Consider Elgin when you join this church, if you're a member of this church. And then, then consider Elgin today. What has changed? More people. And you can complain, okay? Or you could praise God for the opportunity. Yeah, we got to wait at the turn, turn lights now and the stop signs. And it takes me 15 minutes to get out of my neighborhood sometimes. Okay. We got infrastructure problems. But dear ones, do not lose sight through griping over the traffic and whatever else we gripe about that God has laid at our feet a tremendous gospel opportunity. And the question is, how do we take this posture in verse 19? We're free. We're at liberty to be who God has made us to be. But how will we surrender ourselves for the sake of his gospel going forth in this community? What might need to change? And before we start talking about, and this isn't the point of the message. I'm not going to lay out here the 18 things we need to change as a church. That sermon might come. But the thing I want to ask you before that is what needs to change in you? What needs to change in me? Unless God gives us a heart change individually, as individual followers of Christ, as individual households, changing all of the stuff that we do in here, which is not necessarily what I'm saying, would just be like putting lipstick on a pig. That's not what we're after. I'm free from all and not anyone's slave. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Consider that. You're waiting at the checkout. The lines of food line or that day just seem to be out the roof. You, sometimes you hit it and it's just like, where do people come from? I go in there most times, I just slip in and out, and I go on my way. Then the other times, it's like I'm waiting up the ice cream aisle, and which is already problematic. And I'm like, how many things of ice cream can I, do I have to look at before I not get ice cream? Anyways, um, that, so, but say, I, these people who are around, God is he's calling me to be a slave of them so that they know Jesus. That, that, takes, that takes Holy Spirit rewiring. You understand what I'm saying? That's not our natural. That's not my natural tendency. I want to look at the ground. I want to drink my Diet Mountain Dew waiting to get there. So like, get me out of here. I got to get home. I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. Why am I waiting so long? And I tell you, I've had some of the best conversations. When I'm, you know, because usually I have a, a bucket of diapers in tow. If y'all don't know me, right, we have, we have four kids, five and under. We've had two kids in diapers perpetually for like three years, okay? It's a lot of diapers. And that, so, but you come up there and you say, I've got all these, and somebody makes a comment, you know? I remember this one, this one young lady, she was, I don't see her at Food Line anymore, but she said, uh, she said something around the fact of, um, you know, is it, Oh, but she, didn't, she didn't ask me if it was worth it, but it was around that. Like, how, you know, that's a lot of money. I hope it's worth it. And I said, absolutely, they're worth it. And she said, I wish somebody would have said that to me when I was a kid. And I had the opportunity to say, I don't, I don't know you, but you have a father in heaven who thinks you're worth it. He sent his son for you. He would have you for his own. So all that to say, 
I don't do that every time. I'm not a super evangelist, but that was just a very clear moment. But what would happen if we postured ourselves as slaves for the sake of Christ and his gospel? And I'm using that language because it bothers you. Servant would be more servant. But slave is uncomfortable. And Paul, Paul begins to outline all the ways that he plants himself in a particular culture and that he, he, he interacts with that culture so much as he can in a way that makes the gospel more apparent, makes the gospel more accessible, makes the gospel more palatable. To the Jews, he's like a Jew. To those who are without the law, one without the law, though he's not without the law, he wants to make sure, make sure, make us, make sure we know that he's not some antinomian, like running around sinful behavior. He's still under the law of Christ, but he takes <clears throat> he takes awareness of the culture in which he's in, and this is something the Lord has been truly bothering me with. Not like God, God bothers me, but it bothers me. And when I prepare a message, and maybe you see this, confession, right? It's like I spend 90% of my time on what does this text mean? What, what have people said about this? What are the themes here? What have they said about those themes? What does our church need to hear? And then maybe 10%, 5% on all right, we're in Elgin, South Carolina in 2022, post-COVID, these people moving in. What might they need to hear from this text? I haven't been doing that. I, and so th- this is like a kick in the teeth. That's why I didn't want to preach this. I want to preach something else. Because this is on me as much as I'm laying it on you. Not that we need to be evangelists, which we already know we need to do. But we need to consider the culture in which God is calling us to be evangelists. And some of you know, understand, I know, like, uh, I'm not gifted to be an evangelist. Me neither. Scripture tells me to be one. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of, of where is it that God has you? Who, who is in that sphere? Who, who are in those bubbles? Who's in the bubble of your family and of your neighborhood and of your workplace? And if you're going to the same restaurant week in and week out, do you see the same people there? If you go to Bojangles for breakfast every morning, do you see the same people there? If you go to Chevella's every Thursday night, do you see the same people there? Or San Jose's or wherever else you might go. You go to Cracker Barrel, fill in the blank. If you're, if you're a regular somewhere, you probably are seeing some of the same people, typically. How might they hear and see Jesus in you? If we're going to say we're the hands and feet of Jesus, praise God. Yes, we should, be, we should be doing some of the things we're already doing, making sure people have clothes, making sure people have meals. But if we're the hands and feet of Jesus, that means we are the presence of Jesus in our community. So that even and especially when you're not doing churchy things, you are a representative of Jesus. So either you are bringing positive, maybe you're either a good news follower of Jesus, or all those other places that aren't churchy places, aren't ministry places, you aren't giving a consistent witness and you're actually confusing people about the nature of Jesus. 
You understand what I'm saying? If you go around like serving yourself, you're a jerk to your waiters, you're a jerk to your family, you're just a jerk everywhere except for when you come to church. That's, that's not what God is calling you to do. That's actually hypocrisy. And rather than displaying the glory of Jesus, you're throwing shade on Jesus. So Paul walks through, I'm not going to do all of them again. To, to the weak, I became weak. Who wants to become weak? You spend all this time in the gym. I know, I know y'all, all your bench press out there. No, but you, you can see how weak is used, but you become of one who has, who has, who has no strength, who has no power, who has no clout in order to reach those who, who aren't a big deal. Now, there are ways that we as a church do this. And that, praise God, but I'm talking about us. We will not be a gospel-centered church that is mission-centered as a church until we are mission-centered Christians. Until we are gospel-centered Christians on Jesus' mission, then we can never claim to be a mission-centered church. Because the, the church is made up of members. Yes, we have programs, we have budgets, we have buildings. But all those things are peripheral to the real body of the church, which is you and me. And why does Paul... Now notice, why does Paul do this? Why is he so willing to bring some contextualization? The gospel message isn't changing. Certain principles of, of, the, of the presentation are changing. But why would he do this? He begins with the secondary motive and then he works into the primary motive. The secondary motive is that he would save more people. He would win more people. Right? This is, if, if you want to boil it all down, what does God call us to be? Love God, love neighbor. Two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Love God, love neighbor. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Is it not loving to say, I want you to know the best news in the world. I want you to know the best news beyond the world. I want you to not get hit by the train of God's wrath that is coming down the pike at you right now. That might not be your first line. I remember the story, and it's not a story, it was my life, so it's really happened. Um, I was a kid, I was probably eight or not, I was in elementary school, and it was a Saturday, and I guess some church around had gone through evangelism explosion, or whatever it is. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I answered the door that day. It was, it was different back in the day, kids. I know, don't answer the door today, okay? Um, but I was, I was like, I opened the door, and this lady, and I mean, it... Maybe I remember it as creepier than it actually was. But she bends down to me and she says, If you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? Something like that. Or would you go to heaven? And I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I was, um, no, I immediately said, Mom! <laughs> like, I was so scared of this lady. And so then, my, you know, my mom, anyways, it, that's another part of the story that's funny. It's, when you, like, you unleash Alexia Helsley, it's like... Get him. Okay. Um, 
Maybe that's not your first line, okay? Because you're immediately putting things up. Now, it's better than no line. But he, he wants to win by every possible means, save some. What would happen if we were gripped with that kind of heart? By every possible means. We would see the people that live beside us and work beside us and buy ice cream beside us, that they would come to know Jesus. What would change in our lives? And what would change in the life of our church? Every possible means, Paul says. There's a great Spurgeon quote that I'm going to butcher before you. But he says, if sinners would go to hell, let them at least step over our bodies to get there. Lay yourself out so that people can hear of Jesus. So that people may know the great love of God demonstrated in Christ. Lay yourself out. Consider how your weekly rhythm might change. How might your personal finances change? What might change if the mission of God to bring broken and ruined sinners into his family through the gospel of Jesus Christ became your headliner? What would change? And that's your homework. Get to God and ask him that question. That's what I'm doing. That's what we're doing. What needs to change? Because it's really easy. It's really easy for me just just to do what I do. My, okay, I got time. I, you know, no offense, y'all. My week is typically, last few weeks have been very, very, very not normal. Um, But typically my week is is spent predominantly with Christians. And that's great. That's my calling, right? God's called me to be an under-shepherd under shepherd to the flock. Um, but part of that is, is that we got to go get the sheep who aren't in the fold yet. And so how, how does my daily rhythm habits, how does my weekly rhythm and habits, as a man trying to follow Jesus, as a husband, father, pastor, what needs to change there? Particularly as a pastor, what does my rhythm need? How does my rhythm need to change? How do I build in times where I am intentionally around people who don't know God? How am I building friendships with people that don't know Jesus? It's going to require some things of me because I'm not there. I'm not doing that consistently. I mean, I'm just being honest. And it's so easy for me to kind of fall into that other thing. But if, but if we are going to be a missionary, mission-centric people, then you have to have a mission-centric leader. I mean, we have a mission-centric leader in Jesus, but in the Spirit, but in, in the flesh. This is things I'm praying over. But that's the, the secondary motive is to save more people. But the primary motive, verse 23, now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Paul's linking his participation in the blessings with being willing to be a slave of other people for the sake of the gospel. This is the kind of life that a gospel-centeredness produces. When the good news of Jesus Christ gets down in our bones, 
We are willing to give our rights away. We're willing to give our preferences away. We're willing to give our time and our resources away so that other people can step into knowing Jesus. But also, in doing that, our blessings in the gospel grow. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we do it for the sake of the gospel, so that I, Paul says, so that I may share in the blessings. It is a greater blessing. Our discomfort, awkwardness in sharing the gospel, cowardice, those things feel natural, comfortable, easy. But the greater blessing is in the awkward conversation. The greater blessing is in the sacrificial giving of self and giving of time. The greater blessing is making the thing of brownies and bringing it over to the new neighbors. Something we got to do. We got new neighbors right across the street. We haven't had a chance yet, but we're going to. Doing, walking in that way brings greater blessings in the gospel. Because you're becoming more like the one who is at the center of the gospel, Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing. In Philippians chapter 2. Real quickly, 24 through 27. It reminded me, I was researching J. Hudson Taylor. And he said this, but before I say that, let me, before I say the quote, let me, <clears throat> he says, don't you know that all the racers in the stadium race, but only one receives the prize run, run in such a way as to receive the prize. Paul is admonishing the Corinthians, this hedonistic, pleasure centric, loving, flashy preachers, group of Christians. He says, you need to discipline yourselves for this work. 24 through 27 ought not be disjointed from 19 through 23. If you're going to be a slave to all people, you've got to live a life of self-control and of discipline. Because your ease, your comfort will just overwhelm the mission of God in your life. It'll overwhelm the mission of God in your life individually and it'll overwhelm the mission of God in our, our church's life. Where our comfort, our preferences, what we like, what we think ought to happen, it will swallow up the mission of God and we'll have a bunch of spiritually fat and happy Christians while the world goes to hell. And we will be held accountable for it. Run in such a way as to win the prize. How do you do that? Everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. Yesterday we went to, Evelyn May had her dance recital. Which is just like, as a dad, it's like, is there, are there better things on earth? <laughs> just she's a little tutu and it's precious. Uh, but we didn't know, but at, at LE, they had a track meet at the same time. So you get out of your car and immediately you hear the pistol go off and you're like, you know, and they're, and they're running and you see these high schoolers, middle schoolers, I don't know how, how old they are, but they're running with all they got. And you know those kids have been practicing, they've been running, they've been trying to watch what they're eating, they're they're doing everything so that they can be a better runner. And that's just at high school. Consider some of the people in the Olympics and all the things they do so that they might stand on a podium and get a medal. 
Or they might just not make a fool of their country. They're willing to do all of that. Paul says they receive a perishable crown. The gold and silver and the bronze, it'll burn up and be gone. But Jesus' people will receive imperishable, everlasting, immortal treasure. And they are more willing to do what they do so that they can run fast than many Christians are willing to do so that people can hear about Jesus. This is like here too, okay? Run in such a way as to win that imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body. Literally, he says, I, 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 I beat on my body. So that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. To live a life where the mission of Jesus is a headliner means that you're going to have to take up your cross, cross again Die to yourself again. Follow Jesus again. On purpose. J. Hudson Taylor. I'll close here. He said, China will not be won by ease-loving men and women. China, this is in the 1800s. China, and it's still true today, even though they have a gigantic church in China. Uh, it's, it's not easy over there. But China will not be won by ease-loving men and women. And if I may just appropriate the quote, Elgin will not be won by ease-loving men and women. We do not have any of the hurdles that J. Hudson Taylor had. We don't have any of the persecution that the Christians in China have now. I know culture feels more hostile and all that kind of stuff, but nobody's kicking in your door. Nobody's coming in the doors. No government officials are coming in here shut us down. I'm not getting hauled off to prison, okay? It's not the same. But all the while, ease-loving men and women are not going to win Elgin. They're not going to win South Carolina. I'm about to get on a soapbox, and we don't have time for my soapbox, okay? So, but there are parts of South Carolina that percentage-wise, in terms of Sunday morning worship gathering, just one percentage marker, that are equivalent to, un, that would be considered on the international mission field, mission field, they would be considered unreached places. Counties in South Carolina. So we got work to do. We have work to do. So we can work our strategic partnerships, and I pray that God gives us more. But my prayer right now in this season is that God would overhaul, overhaul my heart and our heart so that we would do everything because of the gospel so that by any means and every means possible, we might save some. Let's pray. God of glory, Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel where you have subdued us to yourself as our king. You have died in our place and intercede for us as our priest. You tell us of the good and the true and the beautiful because you are our prophet. Lord, I pray if there are some here who they, they don't have that vibrant living relationship with you. I pray, oh Lord, that you would come now in your grace and to show them, open their eyes, illuminate their hearts that they might see your great love in Jesus. 
and that they might believe upon Christ. They would quit following themselves and yield to you. Father, I pray for this church and for me. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you've called me here and my family and for the years that you've given. God, would you do a work of awakening, of renewal in us? You would turn our eyes upward to Christ first and outward to those who have not yet believed. For Lord, I believe that what you said to your disciples, Lord Jesus, remains true today. The fields are white. They're ripe for the harvest. And we are to beseech you. We are to urge you, ask you for laborers to go out into the harvest. Lord, we ask for laborers for the harvest. But even more so, we ask that you would make us laborers for your harvest. Have your way amongst us. Be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.